1: even at first glance, because he has an apostrophe in his name, which I think is pretty cool. Um, he's a, uh, a senior investigator at NIH, National Institutes of Health, and we're going to talk about um, how the microbiome of uh, is affected, uh, how macrophages respond uh, to, I guess, worm infections, helminth infections. So, Phong, thanks for coming.
2: Uh, no problem.
1: Yeah, if you would, tell me about your, uh, your work uh, in your own words. I'm sure you could describe it better than I could.
2: Yeah, so I've been interested in how um, we respond to uh, worm infections for a really long time. Uh, so worms are these parasitic worms that uh, uh, that you know most of us are terrified about, uh, but it turns out that they're really good at manipulating the immune response. And so ever since I was a PhD student, I've been been studying these these worms, um, and I've been studying. Uh, How they they uh, affect a type of immune cell called the macrophage, Um, and then more recently, I've been become interested in this uh, hygiene hypothesis. This the the hygiene hypothesis. So this is really the idea that you know one of the reasons why we have a lot more autoimmunity and allergic and other types of inflammatory diseases in the developed world is because we've gotten rid of all kinds of infections, including these, uh, these parasitic worm infections. Huh. And one of the things I'm interested in doing at the NIH is to see if you actually reintroduce these parasitic worms that people have been trying to get rid of to people that have these autoimmune inflammatory diseases, whether or not there would be some therapeutic benefit to that. Okay,
1: what, what would you reintroduce and what would be the therapeutic benefit?
2: Yeah, so, so there are a couple of different types of parasitic worms. There, there is uh, hookworm, um, there is whipworm, which is tricurus tricura. Um, and there's also an, uh, another common intestinal worm called ascaris. Now, a few years ago, uh, basically what happened is I, I met this guy uh, in California, and this was when I was a postdoc at UCSF, and this guy had uh, deliberately infected himself with the whipworm tricuris tricura and he oh. did that because um, he had uh, he had ulcerative colitis, so he had this inflammatory bowel disease which uh, was causing lots of damage to his colon and basically the doctors were looking at um, at possibly having a colectomy, which is basically have to, having the entire colon removed. Um, and he had been following the research uh, of uh, an investigator in the University of Iowa called Joel Weinstock, who was doing clinical trials at the time to treat his IBD patients with the pig whipworm Trichuris suis, And this guy decided he, he didn't want the pig whipworm, he wanted the actual human whipworm. And he infected himself deliberately um, with tricurus tricura. And so when I met him, what was really amazing was that he put his disease into remission. Um, and, uh, and so I, I just became fascinated with this idea and the possibility that, you know, these worms could have this potentially therapeutic benefit. Well,
1: why do they have this therapeutic benefit?
2: What are they doing? Yeah, so the the worms are really good at manipulating their host immune response. Um, So, you know, these are pretty large multicellular organisms, and yet they can live within their hosts for years, you know, up to decades. So what the worms have figured out is they figured out a way to to mask themselves from the host immune response uh, to, to prevent themselves from being rejected by the host. Um, so in some ways, you know, the worms are almost like a successful organ transplant. So, so, so if, you know, if you could understand how the worms are preventing themselves from being rejected uh, and how they're manipulating the immune system, um, then, then, you know, that's, that's kind of what what we're trying to do. So what we're trying to do is trying to understand how the worms are manipulating the immune response in, in such a way as to... As to downregulate the immune response or suppress the immune response, so that they don't get rejected, and we, and most scientists think that's a spillover effect essentially um, from from having a lot of worms.
1: Well, I can see that uh, you know they can hide from the immune system, okay, but how would they actually help someone with a condition like IBD, let's say?
2: Yeah, so you know, so you have to start to understand, you know, why people develop IBD, um, and and that's a big question. Lots uh, yeah. still not very well understood. Um, but now, what one of the leading ideas is that you the people get IBD because they mount an inappropriate response against the bacteria that's in their gut, and so you know, if so, it's it's basically mounting a, a inappropriate response to their to the, to the bacteria in the gut and and so the worms might be um, affecting that response to the gut bacteria having said that there are there are clearly other um, other things at work here because there's also um, some studies indicating that worm infections can prevent allergies and that's in a completely different tissue site you know so there are there, there are, I, there are um, hypotheses that the worms uh, inducing uh, regulatory T cells. Uh, so these are T cells that can suppress the immune response in order to down-regulate like an uh, allergy or some other kind of inflammatory response.
1: Do you think they're taking up the, um, I don't know, the, uh, the capacity of the immune system of the host and that's why it tamps down the, uh, the response? Or is there some other mechanism at work that uh, maybe because they're there, the immune system is trying to respond to them therefore it's changing its immune response and it can't fight a battle on two fronts. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I I think, I think it's kind of like the worms are training the immune response. So like the hygiene hypothesis is, is, uh, is is very complicated and I don't think worms is the only uh, uh, explanation for it. Um, I think what's more likely is that, you know, um, is that uh, when, when in, in the modern world uh, we get exposed to, uh, a lot fewer infections than people that live in the developing world or wild animals, um, and it is only through repeated exposure to infections that we train our immune response to behave in the right way. So worms is worms are something that you know in uh, you know during the course of human evolution. of humans would be infected with worms. So we've we've really co-evolved with these worms. Um, And so, you know, before uh, the invention of the modern sewage system, almost everyone had worms. And so your immune system is kind of trained to tolerate these worms. Um, And so what I think is that, you know, uh, if you're not exposed to worms, uh, your immune response response is not as well-trained. Uh, both to turn on, but also to turn off at the right time.
1: Hmm, okay. Huh. So, what's uh, the the guy that infected himself deliberately with the worm? You said his IBD like completely resolved, or like what happened with him? And did he do yeah, any testing on his blood or other parts
2: yes, you know, of
1: himself to see what happened?
2: Yeah. So exactly. So this was, you know, this is more than uh, fifteen years ago now. So we've been working on this ever since, and, and we did exactly what you said, which is to, you know, really carefully study the samples that we collected from his, his gut, for example. And, and one of the things we found was that um, when he had worm infection, uh, his, his gut was uh, able to produce more mucus. Um, and so, like, in IBD patients, oftentimes the, the, mucus, the mucus layer is disrupted, Uh, And that causes uh, bacteria in the gut to drive inflammation. And what we found in in this person was that um, the worm infection was causing uh, more mucus production. And we think that was what was restoring the barrier uh, between the gut bacteria and the intestinal cells. Um, So that's our our hypothesis at the moment, at least, of, of the mechanism by which these worms could um could could uh promote uh, a therapeutic benefit for ulcerative colitis
1: interesting so are you studying um worm infections and how the you know how the human body responds or how other hosts respond in terms of you know immunological response exactly what's like the specific uh, of your research
2: yeah so exactly so that's um that's exactly what we're studying is the the you know the immune response to these worms and and uh uh, and, you know, how how it could be, you know, beneficial to both the host and the parasite.
1: Well, what are you noticing? So you said in that one example with IBD, it looked like the uh, the worm is encouraging the uh, the proliferation of the mucus layer. What, um, I don't know, what else has been studied? Like, are you focusing in typically on, or specifically on how macrophages will, I mean, like, so, so what does the immune response look like when someone gets a worm infection, does it look one way initially and then it changes over time as the worm adapts and it learns to fool the immune system?
2: So the kind of immune response you get um, to the worms is what's called a type 2 immune response. So this is uh, like uh, the same response that gives people allergies. So when you have a lot of mucus, you know, you can think of an allergic patient someone with allergies having a lot of mucus. Um, but this type 2 immune response, it turns out, is, is really important in also tissue repair and wound healing. Um, so there are a lot of features of the immune response against the worms that we're interested in that are to do with um, this tissue repair and wound healing process. And that's a case, a situation where macrophages play a really important role. So it turns out that macrophages that are induced by worms um, have a a tissue repair phenotype. These these are called M2 macrophages or alternatively activated macrophages. And they seem to be very important in, in repairing tissue and resolving inflammation which is different from macrophages that are important for killing bacteria. So you have like inflammatory macrophages that are important in, in killing cells, uh, killing uh, infections, and, but they also can cause a lot of collateral damage. And then you also have these macrophages that come in to repair the tissue and kind of clean up the debris afterwards. And we think that the worms induce more of these kind of tissue repair macrophages. Um, so another aspect um, of our research that we are, we're, we're studying is, is we're really trying to understand uh, how different people respond to worm infection. So I gave you a kind of a, a beautiful example of how it could be beneficial. But obviously, the worms are not um, always beneficial. They, they cause a lot of disease in some people. And so what we're trying to understand is why different people Respond to worms in different ways, and um, and and we think that you know this understanding this heterogeneity between people is is a really important aspect of, of um, immunology.
1: So, what are some of the uh, different ways that it's been observed that people respond to worms? Are there major um, differences?
2: Yeah. So, you know, what happens is that um, you know in a in a place where worms are endemic, the majority of people you know, have worm infections, so this would be like you know, in Malaysia, for example, uh, some of the rural villages where, where we've done our research, but also in Africa and South America and India. The majority of the people who are infected with worms are completely without symptoms. So they just carry worm infections and they don't have symptoms. But you have some people that have a very heavy worm infection um, and then they develop pathology or they develop symptoms from having like really heavy worm infections. Um, on the other hand, you have some people that mount an immune response against the worms that's too strong, and so they, they can clear the worms, they get rid of the worms, but they cause a lot of collateral damage. So both having too strong of an immune response against the worms can cause damage, but if you have a very weak immune response against worms, you can also get super infected and have very heavy worm burdens, um, and that will also give you symptoms so what we 're trying to understand is like why do different people have different worm burdens you know and uh, and we think that 's important also to understand this this concept of therapeutic benefit because i don 't think that worms are going to be beneficial for everybody um, that has IBD that what we need to do is identify the subset of patients, like the, the, the specific group of patients that would respond to worm treatment, and this would be a kind of much more ta- targeted uh, approach to treating um, patients with IBD.
1: Well, what is the approach? Is to uh, let them have the worms but keep the worm burden at a certain level, don't let it exceed that, to deliberately infect them and then keep it to a certain level to try to get rid of the worms? I mean, you know yeah. what would be the modulations
2: here? Yeah, I think what we what you what well what we've been working on and what we've done some uh, work in the past is is I think we have to understand the underlying disease first. So what what people realize is that you know for inflammatory bowel disease patients, it's actually not like one disease; it's a lot of different diseases. You know, so. Even uh, There are two main types of inflammatory bowel disease. that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And even within each of those categories, like let's say ulcerative colitis, even within ulcerative colitis, there's probably a lot of different kinds of diseases that's being classified into the same pool. It's like cancer, you know, like it used to be um, lung cancer, right? But then now we know that within lung cancer, there's all these different like types of lung cancer and I think the true is the same thing is true in autoimmune diseases so like we what we're trying to understand is is like which particular type of ulcerative colitis patients are going to be the ones that might respond to one infections
1: hmm.
2: um, does that make sense
1: yeah how would you like what kind of matrix would you set up to start looking and what are the first signs that you would look for there's a lot of variables it sounds like
2: yeah, exactly. So it's it's become more and more of a computational problem. So what my lab is doing now is we're developing all these assays to all these different ways to measure the immune response. So, uh, you know, what we we're calling this like immune profiling, I guess, you know, to 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 really characterize the immune response of uh, different people uh, in a very detailed way. And then um, what we do is we use these machine learning algorithms to try and classify the immune, pro- immune response of different people into different kind of groups. Um, and once you've determined the groups, then hopefully we can identify a specific group that, that would respond differently uh, to different forms of treatment.
1: Well, respond differently. How, I mean, like again, what are the, uh, the main set of possible responses and, are they all clear-cut, good or bad? Like
2: yeah, like, I don't. That would, yeah, that's tough, right? We we don't know that yet. I mean, we we um, that, that's one. You know that that's why we're also trying to set up uh, human challenge infections. So we're we we're, we're trying to set up experiments where we we give healthy volunteers uh, the worm infections, uh, and, and and seeing how different types of people respond differently to the worms. Um, so I, I can't predict right now, you know, like what is a good response and what is a bad response. But I, I think it's going to be like um, cancer immunotherapy, you, you know, like when when people are treated with these, um, these drugs to uh, increase immune response against cancer what you're getting is uh, you, you're getting a, a, some people that respond to treatment and other people that don't respond to treatment. And, you know, those that, that, that that's a lot of work being being done now to try and understand why some people respond to the cancer immunotherapy and not others. And uh, so I, I think that, you know, with the worm infections, you know, we, we we'd probably go down that route also. Um,
1: amongst the different worms that can infect people, how much of a variation is there in... Do they all seem to have the same bag of tricks? You know, do they all seem to obey the immune system pretty well? Do some do it well, do some not? It's like what, what kind of variants do you see in the worms themselves? Once they've infected us, that would give you some clue as to how they're doing what they're doing.
2: Yeah, no, there is a huge uh, variety of different worms, you know, uh, and they all have different bags of tricks. You know, there are some worms that live in the small intestine, uh, like hookworm. Uh, there's some worms that live in the large intestine, like like the whipworm. Uh, there's also flukes that live in the blood vessels. They all produce a wide array of uh, wide range of different types of molecules. It's it's very hard to generalize, and and I've been generalizing so far because you know it, it, it's otherwise it gets too complicated.
1: Yeah, I mean you can generalize, but there's you know I mean let me know any specifics that you'd like to bring up. You know.
2: Yeah, so, so for example, what we found is like with uh, tricuris, the, the whipworm that lives in the large intestine, what we found is that it can alter the microbiota. It can alter the gut bacteria of its host. Um, and we think that some of the effects are, are acting through the gut bacteria that's altered. Um, so I think this is, I mentioned to you that it, it changes the mucus production right uh, and and what we found was that this inc- this kind of mucus rich environment was uh, beneficial in promoting uh, s- certain types of bacteria, and this led to that bacteria out competing kind of more infra- in more inflammatory bacteria um, but then you know wh- one of the things we thought initially was, oh maybe all of all types of worms can do that because all types of worms induce type 2 condi- uh, immune responses that induce mucus production. But when we did an experiment to compare the different kinds of worms, we found that actually only the Trichuris witworm causes these big changes in the microbiota. Like hookworm did not cause changes to the microbiota, and a fluke called schistosoma mansoni um, also doesn't cause changes. At, well, doesn't, it doesn't cause as large uh, changes to the microbiota as witworm does. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe
0: and review us on iTunes.
1: These worms don't they have their own microbiome associated with them, and then phages, and then viruses, and then I mean, I would think that they're uh, they're essentially like a holobiont, so they would have their own levels of uh, complexity associated with them as well.
2: Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Yeah, and and that that is actually an area that's uh, not been very well studied so far. Um, but you're right. Uh, so like, you know, tricura has a microbiome of its own, you know, and, and, uh, and so that's, so do the others. And, and how does the worm microbiome, you know, affect the host microbiome is something that, you know, we still, we still don't, uh, we still haven't really looked into and not, not many other people have.
1: Has anyone even tried to characterize the microbiome of these, um, of these worms and once it's that. in a host, how does
2: it change? Yeah, yeah there have been some studies on that. Um, and I believe the, the lab of uh, Richard Francis in the University of Manchester has done some work uh, looking at that. And uh, I, I can't remember the specific details of it now. But yeah, people are beginning to look at that. Okay. But, but phages, for example, you know, I, I don't know anyone who's looked at phages um within within the microbiota of these worms
1: well i mean if they have their own microbiome then uh, there's probably a phage activity associated with those microbes that you exactly. know, to them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah no and i don't think anyone's looked at that which would be really interesting
1: well if you don't see if you don't look at the totality of their existence then what's to tell you that you're not missing out on a critical interaction you know what if it's not the the worm itself—that's really modulating the immunity of the host, but it's the uh, the microbiome of the worm. You know, what if it's the uh, I don't know the, the the phages that are bringing some kind of beneficial plasmids to the microbes that you know attach to the helminth, or and those phages are interacting with our own
2: yeah or I, our microbes. I know it, it's absolutely we, we you know there are, that's a that's a wonderful thing about you know that's a wonderful thing about biology and you know uh, studying science and uh, being a biologist, is there's always another layer of complexity that you can delve into. Um, and, uh, you know, so for example, a few years ago, we didn't even really think about the microbiome that much, you know, when, when so for example, when, when I first characterized this patient uh, 15 years ago, um, the microbiome was not really such a big area of research at the time. So we didn't, for example, you know, collect stool samples from this person. We didn't, we didn't look at how his microbiome changed. So we certainly didn't characterize his phages, you know. Um, so it's like every at every stage in in my career, we've seen more and more complexity, and and that's kind of one of the wonderful things about being a being being in science is is to uh, to look at all these things in 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 more and more detail.
1: Yeah, I know you can't look at everything, but
2: yeah, exactly. I mean, that that is the limiting factor, right? Like we. We, we can't look at everything and we, we can already look at more things today than we ever could in the past. You know, like uh, for example, it's amazing with, with the COVID research, right? Like within a relatively short period of time, the amount of information we've collected on, on what happens during coronavirus infection is, is just astounding. Um, and it's just because technologies improve so much, but you know, there's still a limit, you know, we all we all have uh, limits on our resources, and, and you know we we always playing this game between trying to be focused and looking broadly enough to to um, to be able to answer a specific question and yet be open minded to other possibilities.
1: So, in regards to worms, what's your guess on the best place to look? You know, have you looked at the microbiome of people infected that have different clinical outcomes for a signal there or
2: Yeah, Yeah, we have, yeah, so 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 that's, yeah, that's been one of the, that's been one of the things we've looked at, is the microbiome, and, and I mean, and clearly the, the genetics of the hosts play uh, an effect, so, you know, the, the, I, I think certainly the variation in immune responses that we're talking about is, is probably a combination of genetic and environmental factors, right, so, so, um, and that's what we're, we're interested in really understanding more, uh, like with the microbiome, I consider it part of the environmental component, um, and how that interacts with the host genetics uh, is 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 something that you know would 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 obviously determine this variation in immune response that that you know um, that we're interested in. Um, so so yeah, I think I would classify the factors that would affect this immune variation into either genetic factors or environmental factors um, and and really kind of try and understand how those two things uh, interact.
1: I guess the good thing is at least you could put a box around it, meaning that, you know, certain worm infections tend to do, you know, a limited range of things to the host. And, you know, uh, certain ones do coexist there for quite a long time in perpetuity, I guess, uh, you know, until they the host to do something else but they're able to evade immune function so i guess again as an outer box you could say that all right these certain effects are happening we just don't know which components of the system is allowing it to happen or perpetuate so maybe that helps
2: right right exactly exactly um and at the same time you know we we are getting more and more information about the different worms so the genomes of all these worms have been sequenced and a lot of people are characterizing the molecules that the worms are producing. And uh, that also brings a whole, you know, lots of surprises sometimes. Turns out that some of these worms produce uh, something called exosome, uh, which uh, which are these like little packages of vesicles or of of uh, materials that can instruct the host's immune responses um, so we used to think that the worms just secreted proteins that would change the host. But now we've learned that they make these vesicles uh, that can be picked up by host cells and alter their function. Um, so, yeah, there's, loads, uh, there's lots of things to learn about, you know, each of these different individual worms.
1: Oh, so you've yep. observed that the, the worms produce extracellular vesicles that go into uh, host cells?
2: Yeah we we haven't done that work so that's not work from our lab but I'm aware of you know uh, uh, labs that study that so like uh, about uh, in December last December I I organized a uh, a keystone meeting on worms basically helminths I guess that it was a helminth keystone meeting and that's where we got all the experts together and where they presented their research and and this particular aspect of work I found really fascinating you know that that the worms were actually secreting these vesicles that was uh, that were full of and and some of it was you know micro RNAs you know it wasn't even just proteins within the vesicles, um, they had micro RNAs within the vesicles that was uh, altering immune function. So
1: well. they have, like specific cell tar- cell type targets or what?
2: Uh, I don't know if they were you know th- so that that was the the work that the teams were beginning to look at it was you know, the specific targets of, of these, um, these microRNAs. rnas um, And uh, if, I, if I remember, the other interesting thing that came out of it is that, like these, you know, the, what the researchers, um, and I believe that they were in Scotland. So what they were doing was they were actually using some of these extracellular vesicle proteins as vaccine targets. So the idea is that you vaccinate not against the worm, but you vaccinate against the molecules that the worms are producing to evade the immune response. So you're kind of disarming the, you're disarming the ability of the worm to evade the immune system and therefore allowing the host to get the upper hand. So that I thought was also a really cool idea because no one's been able to develop, it's been very, very difficult to d- successfully develop vaccines against worms because they're so good at evading the immune system. So this idea of like developing a vaccine against the worm evasion molecules, I thought was really cool.
1: Um, You know, it'd be really cool if like for organ transplants that you said they're like little organ transplants. If you could take the, um, you know, the EVs produced by worms or at least the components inside them and use that to suppress someone's immune system perhaps more naturally than these small molecule drugs so they can tolerate a, a, a transplant,
2: that might be really cool. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and and that was actually the reason I got so fascinated with worms in the first place. When I was a PhD student, my my PhD supervisor, who's uh, this guy called Rick Maisels in the University of uh, Edinburgh. So he he was we were in University of Edinburgh at the time. He's now in the University of Glasgow, but basically he got me hooked on the worms because he told me, look, if we can understand how the worms. Can evade the immune system and be like a successful organ transplant. You know, you could use the same knowledge to to um, enable people to successfully um, take an organ transplant, right? Uh, and you just learn all these cool ways that you could manipulate the immune response uh, to uh, in a in a kind of a, in a toler- you know how do you tolerate basically the immune response to to um, to this foreign body.
1: Is there anyone that's looked at people that have cancer that also have been infected by worms and what happens?
2: Uh, that I, I don't know any specific details. Um, I think generally the, the, the idea is that uh, it's bad for cancer because, you know, in the case of cancer, you want to mount an immune, a good immune response against the cancer uh, and the worms might, you know, might not be good for that. Um, but that is really very general. Um, I don't, I don't know any specifics, uh, you know, of specific like really strong examples of what happens. There are certainly some worms that cause cancer. Um, oh really? Yeah. Oh. So so there's a, there's a there's a worm called Schistosoma hematobium uh, that uh, causes a lot of uh, bladder inflammation. Uh, and that can lead to bladder cancer. And there's also um, uh, a really fascinating um, uh, fluke in Thailand uh, that, that, that uh, I'm, I, I, I'm embarrassed, but the name has just, um, just evaded me. But this, this fluke uh, can also cause um, cancer in people that, that get infected. So there, there, are, there are examples of the worms that can cause cancer.
1: Yeah, do do the worms seem to exclude preferentially other organisms once they invade a host? Like if, if I'm infected with worm A, will worm B not be able to infect me? Like if you look at people, let's say in Africa, that are exposed to a lot of different potential worms and other parasites, do they tend to only have maybe one or two kind of parasites and the other ones are excluded? Because the first parasite gets there and says, yeah, hey, it's my my territory now, get out.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to be the case right now, but that what what you do get is you, you, you do get what's called concomitant immunity, where you get uh, resistance to the same worm rather than to other worms. I think you know, it's very, very common to find people with uh, infections of multiple worms. Um, so I don't think there's much kind of cross protection that like where the, the worms are trying to establish territory. But there is some uh, e- experimental evidence that, you know, if you already have a lot of tricurus tricura, for example, you are less likely to get, you know, infected with to the same degree um, with more exposure. Yeah, that's a question Steve. Last less,
1: less set of questions. Where do the worms come from before they infect a person? You know, I know it depends on the worm, but what are some of the common like intermediate hosts or places that they'll be found? And if you study them before they infect someone versus after, how much of a difference do you see? What kind of differences do you see? And is that informative?
2: Yeah, so the majority of people that are infected with worms get it from the soil. In fact, they're called um, soil transmitted helmets. Um, And this is uh, from people being exposed to eggs or parasites in the soil. So hookworm, uh, whipworm, and oscaris are the three most common worms worldwide. And they're all, people get infected when young kids ingest the soil. So, you know, we know kids eat eat dirt. And and basically, if they eat dirt that has a lot of worm eggs, um, they'll get infected. Or they, you know, uh, walk around bare feet uh, in tropical climates. They, they can get hookworm larvae uh, infect through their skin. So those are the most common ways of uh, getting worm infections. Um, the other very common way of getting worm infections are uh, by the schistosome parasites, and that's from uh, swimming in rivers and lakes uh, and. And uh, just being in the water. Um, so there's in that case with schistosoma mansoni, the schizosome parasites, the intermediate hosts are snails. Um, so the snails p- produce uh, the cercariae, which are these um, torpedo-like mo- uh, worms that, that basically penetrate the skin uh, to establish infection. Um, so in all of these cases, you know, the fecal root is the main. Kind of cause of transmission so so basically you know in all parts of the world where you have a, a functional sewage system you you can effectively see a lot less um, worm transmission so that's really the main main the main places you're gonna get worms from are places that don't have toilets <laughs> basically um, uh, there, there are there are also some worms that you get from uh, mosquitoes and so on but um, yeah those are more complex life cycles
1: um well i guess there's a there's a whole world of, of things to know about worms so well, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to uh you know to get in contact
2: um i i think you know they could look up my my website uh, i guess the, I, I have a new nih website now <laughs> okay. um so, so yeah i that, i guess that's probably the the best place to to start and you know they can read a bit about our, our work there and yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's probably the best place to start.
1: Well, very good. Well, no Paul, it's been great to talk to you. And thank you
2: for coming on the podcast. Sure, no problem. Yeah, I hope that was interesting. If
0: you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.